It's hard to look back over this year and not be diverted by some major setbacks for women. On International Women's Day in 2022, a young Kurdish-Iranian woman called Mahsa Amini was still alive. Her death six months later at the hands of Iran's morality police ignited protest across the country and beyond. Also on this day last year, Afghan girls were still mostly in school until the Taliban decreed otherwise. And in the United States a year ago, the Roe versus Wade laws which gave women the right to abortion still applied. You could be forgiven for thinking women's rights in many parts of the world are going backwards. Fatima Bhutto is a Pakistani writer and columnist. She's the daughter of politician Mirtaza Bhutto, the niece of former Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto, and the granddaughter of former Prime Minister and President of Pakistan, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. Fatima is in Australia for the All About Women Festival in Sydney and joins us from Melbourne. Welcome to Late Night Live. Thank you, Kylie. It's great to be with you. Now, it does seem as though women and girls are under siege in many parts of the world. Is that just an impression on our part in the West? Or are we seeing it that way because women are, in fact, now more prepared to protest transgressions wherever we are? I think women are suffering all over the world. And I think even in the West, you mentioned Roe versus Wade and the scale back in America for um, abortion rights and access to uh, health care for women who who may not want to continue with pregnancies. It's, it's the same even if we look at Europe. Um, you know, what Me Too taught us that the war against women isn't just being fought out there in the non-Western world. It's being fought everywhere, unfortunately. I'm glad women are protesting, but I'm not sure the war has let up against them anywhere, really. Let's talk about Iran momentarily. I mentioned earlier the story of Masa Amini, whose death saw thousands of women and girls in Iran burning their veils, cutting their hair, at great personal risk to themselves in defiance of the regime. And sadly, those protests were met by severe crackdowns, violence and even execution. And now this extraordinary story of Iranian girls being poisoned by gas in schools across the country. We don't seem to know yet, or it doesn't seem to be clear as yet, who is responsible for these attacks. Do you have any insight into that? Well, I think that part of the difficulty with the the question of Iran is that while Iranian women have certainly been incredibly courageous, and they have always been, this didn't happen in 2022 alone, uh, women have always been an integral part of protest and political movements in Iran. The problem with the recent protests is that they're accompanied with really unsettling language. Um, they're accompanied with talk of regime change. You know, the former Shah's son, Reza Pahlavi, is also using these protests as a vehicle to bring back a really corrupt and pretty oppressive monarchy to Iran. So I think part of what troubles me when we talk about places like Iran or Afghanistan, is that we're not having full conversations. Uh, and I'm wary of women being used for political ends. You mentioned the Taliban earlier, and you're absolutely right, women are facing dreadful conditions in Afghanistan today. But it was the United States that made a peace deal with the Taliban. They cut out the Afghan government, they signed a peace deal with the Taliban, and now they are surprised that women might be treated exactly as the Taliban treated them before? I mean, to me, it seems slightly disingenuous. 
Can we reflect a, a moment longer on Iran? The majority of university students in Iran are, in fact, women. There is yes. a kind of a critical base of very well-educated Iranian women who are right at the forefront of demanding political change, and that has been so for decades. Absolutely. Um, I went to Iran twice on a journalist visa and was blown away by not just the courage of women, but their determination to make themselves seen and heard under incredibly difficult conditions. And I remember asking, this was in Tehran in 2007, I remember asking um, a woman that I spoke to then, and I met filmmakers, I met journalists, I met activists, I met professors, and was really taken by their incredible courage. And I remember asking them, how do you survive uh, all these restrictions? And they, I remember one woman held out her hand, like um, she held it out flat, and then she sort of raised her fingers up till it was a claw. And she said, we have to live somewhere between the claw and the flat hand. You know, when we go too far, they, they close the grip on us. And when we get too upset, they loosen it. So I think there is no question that Iranian women will absolutely be the ones to change the situation in Iran. They will absolutely be the ones to fight for their rights. And I think we should support them, but I think when you have a political conversation stretching from the United States to Europe about regime change, then I think it's better that we support them through solidarity. But I don't think sanctions help. I've heard terrible um, opinions of people saying, oh, we should sanction Iran further in order to help the women's movement. That's not going to help the women's movement. That's going to put poor... Um, illiterate women, working class women in even more difficulties. So I think we have to be really cautious about what kind of support we want to offer to women in need, wherever they may be. I suppose the challenge for policymakers is that there are only a limited amount of tools that you can apply to try to uh, impact or at least demonstrate your disappointment or anger at, at Tehran's policies against women. And of course, those governments are under pressure from their own voters to do that. So, yes, it's, it is a, a dissatisfactory choice often, but still you wonder what other choices might be available. I guess I wanted to ask you, Fatima, most of the people who have come to Australia from Iran as political refugee, refugees have been men. Should Australia be doing more, do you think, to focus on and target helping Iranian women who might want to seek political refuge? Well, I think the question should be to, to be open to to women who need refuge from wherever in the world they may be. I think even if we look outside of Iran or Afghanistan or Syria, one of the greatest problems facing women all over the world today is climate change. The refugees of tomorrow, even of today, are not going to be refugees of war. They're going to be refugees from floods and fires. Um, and drought. And I think the Western world, um, or the developed world, or whatever we want to call it, has to make up its mind if it's going to pull up their drawbridges, or they're going to create havens for people who, who need them. We know that climate change is incredibly democratic. It, it will not spare anyone, not the rich, not the poor, not the Western, not the Eastern. But we also know that women suffer disproportionately. Women suffer health crises um, in in disaster situations that are quite different than what men face. So I think countries like Australia should be open to anyone who needs refuge at, at this point in time, women or men. 
Can we talk briefly about the flood disasters in in Pakistan? You talk about climate change and the impact that's having particularly on women. Uh, Your family has a history of kind of, I suppose, in the homelands of Sindh, and that was, of course, one of the worst hit provinces Mm -hmm. in these recent floods. Can you talk a little more about the way in which that might have particularly affected the female population? Yes, thank you for asking about that, Kylie, because the floods in Pakistan were a catastrophic, nightmarish event which really didn't receive the attention it it deserved around the world. Um, 30 to 50 million people were internally displaced. A third of the country was submerged underwater. A million livestock were, were swept away by, by flood water. And it is absolutely a consequence of climate change. It's a consequence of erratic monsoon patterns and global heating because Pakistan's glaciers are melting and, and melting at a, an accelerated speed. And we saw that it it damaged homes and roads and agricultural land. But what we also saw was that nearly 700,000 pregnant women were essentially deprived of of health care, of support, of even basic medical care, forget neonatal or maternal health care. And the mother is in danger, it means the baby is in danger. So, you know, when I say almost 700,000, let's just double that. And we saw beyond that, that they faced a lot of mental health um, crises from from trauma and anxiety. Um, the floods were relentless and the, the rains were relentless and it caused a great deal of trauma for those who had to live through it. Um, on top of which, you know, it deprives women of access to bathrooms. When your home is swept away and you're a woman and you need to go to the bathroom in a place like Pakistan or India, it becomes a safety issue. Um, women are often assaulted as they try and find a place that's private for them to relieve themselves. It becomes a sexual violence issue. We had something like, I think it was 70% of women that were tracked were suffering UTIs. Girls of of, uh, menstrual age were developing all kinds of crises because they couldn't get hygienic ways to manage their periods. So this this has been something that Pakistan saw at at the peak of the floods. But months later, there is still stagnant flood water. Uh, Homes haven't been rebuilt. Um, In Sindh, where my family is from, you have an incredibly corrupt government. And so people have found that you cannot rely on the government. It's the same government that didn't have any water infrastructure plans in place, that had no disaster relief plans in place. And so people have had to help each other. Individuals have had to go out. And there have been incredible doctors in Pakistan who've put together emergency birthing kits and taken them themselves in their little cars and driven out to villages to give them out to women. How do you reflect? I mean, your your family has played a very powerful role in politics in Pakistan f- for generations. Do you ever reflect on, I suppose, the trenchant inequalities that women there face? How do you reflect on that and the kind of failure of political change to reach, you know, the people whom it seems are most in need of that? Um, I do. I think about it very often. Um, You know, families are not monoliths and certain family members did a lot for women's issues and other family members did not. Um, Certain governments did work, others did not do work. I think the question is always corruption. You know, corruption is not an abstract issue when a government is corrupt, such as 
the Sindh government today, which is run by my my aunt's husband. When a government is corrupt, what it means is that children don't go to schools. It means we have thousands of ghost schools in Pakistan. It means, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. that uh, that's a fascinating story to me, that what's going on with the ghost schools there in Sindh? Well, it's a, it's a terrible story. Um, what it, a ghost school is, is that, let's say, governments or aid organizations will give Pakistan a million dollars, or they'll give the Sindh government, rather, because you don't really have ghost schools in other province, provinces. They're very connected to um, the Zardari party's corruption. So you get a million dollars to build schools. The government takes the money. They build a school. So they build a little frame of a school so that they can show the donors, look, we've built 500 schools in this district. Um, They will hire teachers on the books. Teachers will be drawing salaries. Um, But there will never be classes run out of those schools. There will never be students enrolled in those schools. And and this comes from... um, it's, It's for a very interesting reason, a terrible reason. In Pakistan, on election day, the only neutral observer in a polling booth is a government school teacher. So every government that comes in... Um, will hire 45,000 school teachers. And they're not teachers. They're just their friends. (laughs) They're their mates. They're their cousins, uncles, you know, relatives or whatever. And what it means is that they will ensure that they win. They will rig for them on election day. So to tie uh, the fates of corrupt political entities in Pakistan to the fate of education has been a disastrous, disastrous thing. And um, they, you know, you see them everywhere you go. I was just in Sin two weeks ago and saw Go School and, you know, you have to ask these questions. You have to say not just that it's not enough to complain or to protest. I think you have to say, what is the name of the teacher who's drawing a salary from the school and not teaching? And uh, and you have to make that public. Having worked in Pakistan and Afghanistan, um, Fatima, I often reflect on the fact that a lot of girls during the Taliban era, the beginning of the Taliban era, their families went to Pakistan and they were educated mm-hmm. in Pakistan and they received a very good education mm-hmm. in Pakistan, certainly one that was better than what the options were for the girls who stayed in Afghanistan. And mm-hmm. so when Hamid Karzai came in and there was that massive change, then it was those girls who flooded back and became the kind of new leaders, if you like, mm-hmm. of, of that community. And then to reflect on that now and see... In Afghanistan, again, girls not being permitted to go back yeah. to their high schools since the Taliban returned to power. You know, this fake promise of women's rights, but of course, ultimately expanded restrictions on women's freedom. It, it must be frustrating for you to see too. It's very frustrating, Kylie, and it's also it's also so upsetting because, um, you know, we know that... Uh, Afghanistan was hit last year by flash floods uh, around the same time as Pakistan's flooding. Um, They've also had, they have a hunger crisis in Afghanistan. Um, The UN said that almost 100% of women-run households face dire hunger. And we've seen this slow return to Taliban restrictions on women. Now, when the United States, when Joe Biden's government and Donald Trump's government and all the governments before them were negotiating with the Taliban, why weren't women's rights a condition for the peace deal? I don't think it's enough to make the peace deal with the Taliban and then say, oh, sorry, now we can't do anything about women. Let's sanction them. You sanction Afghanistan, women are going to suffer. Sanctions are absolutely brutal and they don't help women. Um, they help women least of all. So why why weren't women's rights a condition of signing a peace deal with the Taliban? Why weren't why weren't they held accountable before they were returned to power? And also, I suppose the question has to be asked: 
of of the government's prior to the Taliban return. It's true that they changed things and they opened up, but it wasn't enough. What were they doing for 20 years? Fatima, you grew up in in Syria. You mentioned the floods in Pakistan, but of course the recent earthquake in Syria has had a, a terrific and terrifying impact on the population there, but again, especially on women and girls. What are you hearing mm-hmm. from there in that regard? Well, yeah, Syria is just a, a tragedy of continually evolving proportions. Syria before the war was actually the only place in the Arab world where nationality passed through the mother, not the father. And as a secular country, was quite progressive. For for all its faults politically, women's rights were, you know, further along in Syria than in many other parts of the Middle East. Uh, I mean, I won't even talk about Saudi Arabia, where women only got the right to vote six years ago or something like that. But as we, as as I mentioned earlier, it's women suffer disasters disproportionate to to men um, for for many reasons. And I think we see the same thing when we look at the earthquake. Number one, Syria has been slightly left out of the rush to send aid because of the political issue, because of the war, because who are you sending the aid to? There are sanctions against the Syrian government. Opponents of the government want the sanctions to stay, but you cannot really help a country in a disaster while maintaining sanctions. And again, it'll always be women that suffer. It'll be the poor that suffer. It'll be minorities that suffer and and it will be women and i think that these are disasters that we've also we've grown to have a limited attention span towards so we know about them the first two weeks they happen but we don't tend to follow them up so whether it's the floods in pakistan or the earthquake in syria i think we have a duty to keep checking to keep trying to find out and really to keep doing what we can uh, until people can return to some semblance of normality We don't just want to look at issues for women in the Middle East, though. I mentioned at the start Roe versus Wade. Uh, Mm. And here in Australia, we've seen women's marches across the country protesting the treatment of victims of sexual abuse and raising issues around our own shocking statistics on domestic violence. Does hearing those stories surprise you from Australia? It doesn't, Kylie, because I think the experience of women wherever they are in the world is one Um, really a fear. Maybe the degree is different. But I was speaking to an Italian woman a few days ago, and she asked me if I felt unsafe as a woman in Pakistan. And the truth is, I've also felt unsafe as a woman in Italy. (laughs) I felt unsafe as a woman in any country in the world when I had to walk home alone at night. Uh, and I had to put my keys between my fingers or I had to look around me or I couldn't just look at my phone on a, on a subway. And I think it does a disservice to the discourse of women not to acknowledge that there is no ideal place for women. There is no place where women are um, able to live under perfect safety and freedoms and have their rights, whether those are um, in terms of health or education or, or pay. I don't think there's any place where women have these rights respected. Fatima, I'm interested to to kind of unpick that a little in the sense that if there is, as you describe, a kind of a, a campaign or a system that exists that is constantly at work marginalising and persecuting women and kind of oppressing women who are seeking uh, equality, then where is that coming from? Like why do you think there is such a determined and ruthless campaign? It's it's power, you know. Power power is an organism that extends all its tentacles to protect itself. 
And we can call that power patriarchy. We can call that power capitalism. We can call that ca- we, we can call it whatever we like. But it it seeks to preserve a status quo, and the status quo may differ um, from geography to geography. But it will always push down on on anyone that that seeks entry, and and who seeks entry, it'll always be people from the periphery. It, it'll be women. It'll be um, dissenters and and questioners. And I think women have to be a lot more aggressive, actually. I think Me Too was a, a great reminder that women everywhere are, are fighting for a, just a bare minimum of safety and, and respect. But, you know, there's still conversations we haven't had about Me Too. We haven't spoken about the ways in which women were part of the predation of these powerful men, the way in which women didn't safeguard other women but worked against them. You know, these these are uncomfortable conversations. But I think if the, if the feminist... M- issue is to have any effect, then then we've got to be much more, gosh, what's the word? I, I think we've got to be much more questioning. And when we have to question everything and everyone. Is there an impact in solidarity? Is there an impact to be had in solidarity? Here in Australia, at least, you know, we have free speech to express our distress and our disgust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we have seen women raise their voice in protest in places like Iran and Afghanistan only to experience greater reprisals. Mm-hmm. But but does a well-attended march in Australia where people are calling for improved rights for the women, for the sisterhood in Iran, does that demonstration of solidarity get anywhere? Is there an impact from that? I think I think yes and no. I think there is an impact, but it can't be selective. We can't engage in selective solidarity. So it's wonderful that people will show solidarity with the women in Iran, but it's not very believable if they don't show that same solidarity with women in Palestine who are tear-gassed, who have spent 75 years of arrest, dispossession, torture. Uh, you know, Israel has arrested 10,000 women since the 1967 war. So... I think there's a problem of good oppressed women and bad oppressed women. And it seems like in in a larger way, people are happy to show solidarity with the good oppressed ones. But, you know, if it's slightly uncomfortable, then we're happy to ignore the bad oppressed women. You know, not just Israel, Palestine, but let's talk about India for a moment. In 2018, the Thomas Reuters Foundation named India as the most dangerous place in the world for women more dangerous than Afghanistan, more dangerous than Syria. And they they chose India because they looked at six different um, indices. They looked at health, they looked at sexual violence, they looked at pay, they looked at all kinds of things. Um, Why don't we talk about that? You know, we saw terrible, terrible stories of rape cases coming out of Delhi, coming out of Uttar Pradesh. We don't talk about it. And is that because India is a trading partner of Australia or America or they're a buffer against China? Well, I don't think women are stupid and I think women can tell when their movements are hijacked or used for political means and when it's a genuine outpouring of sisterhood and solidarity. So if sisterhood and solidarity is to be meaningful, then it's got to it's got to it's show itself for all women, not just the women that suit certain political aims. There is sometimes the expectation that as female leaders rise to prominence, then there will be progress 
for women, but doesn't necessarily hold, does it? I'm thinking of people like Georgia Maloney in Italy, who's, yeah. of course, anti-abortion and anti-gay rights, <laughs> or Ursula von der Leyen even, you know, the first woman to become president of the European Commission. She was a defence minister from the Christian Democratic Union for Angela Merkel in Germany. So even though sometimes people can dress a victory as a kind of a gender victory, it doesn't necessarily follow that everyone of that gender in the country benefits equally from it. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Kylie. I, I am incredibly suspicious of it. And I don't think being a woman is qualification enough. You know, I was really horrified to see Hillary Clinton congratulate Georgia Meloni when she became the head of state of Italy. Um, She's a racist and a fascist. She's the first fascist since Benito Mussolini to come to power. So I really don't appreciate that she's a woman, in fact. Um, her being a woman doesn't take away that her politics are ugly and hateful and exclusionary. And I think we've got to be careful of this symbolism, you know, at the same way when, when I say solidarity has to be universal for it to be meaningful. In the same way, being a woman in power is not enough. What kind of woman in power are you? Are you a progressive woman? Are you a woman that seeks to uplift people? Um, are you a woman that seeks to enhance rights or, or deprive rights? That that has to be what matters. And I unfortunately, in, in, in Pakistan, you know, maybe people don't know, but the five largest Muslim countries in the world have all had head of states that were women. Um, from India to Bangladesh to Pakistan to Turkey to... So in a way, the Muslim world has been far more progressive than the West. Um, they've had plenty more female leaders. But at the same time, you know, when we look at the the track records of these female leaders, hmm, they they leave a lot to be desired, you know. And and again, even if we look at the West, I mean, Margaret Thatcher, I, I don't know if I feel happy <laughs> that she was a woman. <laughs> Her politics don't make me feel good about anything. Um, so we, we need women in power. We absolutely do. But but we need we need to hold them to as high a standard as we hold men in power. So so what I'm getting from your your answers then is a notion that if if this kind of new wave of feminism is to carry forward and to have an impact, then it needs to be an authentically engaged movement. It needs to consider and and weigh up the choices of who to protect, who to elevate. Absolutely. I mean, just look at America. Nikki Haley has thrown her hat in the ring to be a Republican contender for president. Do you think she's going to give women more reproductive rights? No. It, she's a pro-war hawk. Um, she has no, <laughs> she has no feeling um, for the poor and suffering of the world. Uh, she would roll back um, abortion rights, um, reproductive rights. Uh, that in, she's incredibly hostile to the to the LGBT movement, to trans people. So all that she has going for her is that she's a woman, and and frankly, for me, that's absolutely not enough. Fatima, thank you. Thank you, Kylie. Fatima Bhutto is a Pakistani writer and columnist. She will appear at the Capitol in Melbourne on March 8th, presented by the Wheeler Centre and RMIT Culture, and at the Sydney Opera House on March 11th and 12th as part of the All About Women Festival. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.